Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, what is the future of the media? Malcolm X once called the media the most powerful entity on earth, with the power to make the innocent guilty and the guilty innocent. With the rise of social media, fake news, and increasingly insidious forms of political and corporate propaganda, trust in the media has fallen to historic lows, while a funding crisis has seen the closure of thousands of newspapers across the world. Recent controversies about disinformation on climate change and vaccinations have revealed the limits of our increasingly corporatized online media's power to inform. So what is the future of news? In front of a live audience at Ireland's Edge in Dingle, I was joined by John Mulholland, editor of The Guardian US, Brian McRath, chair of the Future of the Media Commission and of the Task Force on COVID-19 Vaccination, and Anya Kerr, Chief Operating Officer of Kinzen and former Global Head of Journalism Partnerships for Facebook. Now, because this was a live audience recording, please just be aware that there may be some audio interference at times. Now, John, I might start with you. Um, like, as I said, the appetite for news has been enormous in the last couple of years as we all live through one of the most extraordinary events that hopefully many of us will face in our lifetime. Um, but at the same time, the news media has been facing huge challenges in the sense that advertising revenue has sort of collapsed. It's very difficult for many newspapers to stay in business. Um, and obviously the impact of the internet has meant that many of us don't pay for our news in the way that people used to pay for a daily newspaper and so on. So as an editor, how has it been going through like what are probably one of the biggest stories that you'll ever cover um, with such enormous appetite for coverage but at the same time seeing an industry that is really struggling. Um, I'll just talk briefly about some of the kind of ironies in terms of the financial challenges is that, of course, the last two years, uh, as you say, there was such an enormous appetite for news that many news organisations had a, a kind of a windfall from that kind of appetite, whether it was from advertising or from organisations like ours that depend on, in part, reader revenue. And unfortunately, perhaps, there is a relationship between news which is most visceral and dissonant and the order and amount which readers give. And if they're plugged into a news cycle that is as disruptive and compelling as the one that Trump created, financially, it actually does reward news organizations if they're ones that rely on reader revenues because you have so many eyeballs uh, listening, watching, reading, and they tend to be viscerally engaged in that coverage in a way that provokes uh, financial giving. But, but that's a hopefully temporary, at least for another two and a half years, um, period of time. But the landscape in America is fairly treacherous. There was a University of North Carolina study which was finished about two years ago which audited the number of newspaper closures in America from 2004 to 2020. 1,700 newspapers have closed in that time. When you drill into those figures, it's mostly weekly newspapers. The vast majority of those are weekly newspapers in small rural communities in America. And small rural communities in America will tend to be older, uh, lower income, poorer, more remote. So those are the people that are often being disadvantaged first. And there are clear studies showing that Trump uh, did better in small communities 
which wasn't served, which weren't being served by a local news organization. Uh, they were being served by social media, which, as we know, have not managed to gatekeep misinformation and disinformation. So there is a clear line from, you know, the role a news weekly performs in a small, and I'm saying small, you know, we're talking four, five, ten, fifteen thousand communities, where we know that local news organisations have typically uh, helped develop a sense of shared common values and a common spirit. And when that news weekly is closed, there isn't a kind of organising public square. The public square is coming from. Uh, is coming from a social media platform or some bad faith actors who are playing out their own kind of global politics and it's impacting on, you know, small towns in America. So those are the communities that are first hit. I would just say in passing, you know, it's easy to romanticize American newspaper history. And I think we should remember that they were typically owned by large wealthy families and they would often entrench social and political hierarchies. Yeah, bias and, bias and fake news are not new inventions, are they? I mean, the, the media, yeah. newspapers have been yeah. trying to manipulate their readers and have a political agenda for a long time. So yeah, it's not like there's some halcyon past. But that's very interesting what you say about small rural weekly newspapers closing down, because of course, in this country, we had a very long history of exactly that as well, the regional press. Um, you know, the Kerryman down here in Kerry, which was, you know, a, a huge fixture for my family growing up. And, you know, my grandparents wouldn't have gone any week without buying the Kerryman. And obviously there were huge numbers of local papers going back even to the 19th century, with great names like the Tipperary Vindicator and stuff that carried like large amounts of global news as well as local news. Brian, you've been working on the Future of Media Commission here in Ireland. And, you know, a lot of the issues that John was talking about there, um, you know, that face the media in America have also been true here in terms of finding viable ways to fund important news. Do you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about how that will play out here in Ireland? Because in America, we've obviously seen kind of a, an extreme example of what happens when you have a, a polarized and denuded press. What do you think about here in Ireland? So I'll just give the context to, to that question for, for us that the, I was always asked to chair the Future of Media Commission and uh, we met for uh, 10 months and looked at all of these issues and reported to government um, a number of months back and they're actively deliberating at the moment. So my confidence is, number one, what I can say is constrained by that. But secondly, uh, my confidence, it, um, it's on hold at the moment, but I am confident. But certainly... What exactly John described in the US was extremely helpful to us in painting a picture which could happen here if we're not careful. And also what happened in Ireland over the past year in terms of the role of particularly public service media, but also the broader media sector and what we would call uh, public service content providers right across the print, online and broadcast. All of that heightened the focus on how important uh, well-functioning media uh, are to a well-functioning society, to democracy, to societal well, well-being. So um, a number of things are coming through at the moment that, that, are, that are very important in terms of legislation. And just in the past two weeks, Ireland signed into, into law the European Copyright, Copyright Directive, which obliges the, the tech platforms now to negotiate with media organisations and content creators in general. And it, it, it has changed the balance. Now, What's going to happen? How's it going to work out? Time will tell, but already Irish Times have signed up and more recently Media House have signed up. So if all of that works well, I'm confident. 
if the government um, approves, endorses and implements um, all 50 of our recommendations that are tackling all of the issues that we talked about here. Like, they're very, very clear messages, but I suppose the core message is uh, uh, value this, invest in it, or, you know, you know uh, deal with the consequences. And the examples to the east of us and to the west of us uh, focuses the mind that. Yeah, because the consequences are, as you say, very stark when we look yes. at other parts around the world. Now, Anya Kinzen work on issues of disinformation in the media um, ecosystem. And as we were discussing, you know, there have been very big political consequences to the way that the media has changed, to the disinformation that has been put out, but also to the way that the media could be manipulated by foreign actors, by people deliberately trying to manipulate our media, as we saw in the Brexit referendum and in the rise of Donald Trump in the US. How do you approach um, a media ecosystem where there are lots of competing vested interests, all of which, as John mentioned in some of these paradoxes, are actually aiming at kind of making the media less useful to citizens in the sense that they are, that the, the financial interests and the political interests don't want us to have a kind of a free and fair, balanced media, etc. How do you approach something where the, the, the incentives are pulling apart? I think we have to start with the difficult assumption that a lot of this is broken. Um, we have to accept that the advertising model that has long sustained the journalism industry is broken in that you now look at recent research that shows something like 85% of online advertising revenues goes to the big platforms. 45% of just your general media budgets goes to those platforms. So your traditional media, your mainstream quality news and information media has got a very small piece of the pie to compete for. So we have to accept that that advertising model as we've known it is broken. But we also have to, I think, accept that along the years of the move fast and break things, which was a mantra that a lot of our platforms introduced in the last two decades, that in building these algorithms and online experiences, and I will still say I believe in the power of platforms to do good in the world. I think where a lot of us are more informed and connected and educated about the, the bigger world around us and we can make more informed decisions about it. But in that move to build these platforms and experiences, it was more, faster content everywhere. And we built these hidden algorithms. And in that move to move fast and break things, we broke the connection between people and quality news and information. So we have to accept that that connection is broken. And in the process of all of that, trust somewhere along the way has also gotten broken. Now, we'll come back maybe to talk about false news, misinformation, disinformation later, but we have to accept that as a premise. Now, we can come to all of the solutions Brian is talking about there today and discuss those and what are the right models to support and finance quality journalism. But I would argue that in order to get to that conversation, people in my industry, and I'm a former journalist, I, I've been inside newspapers, the Irish Times, Irish Examiner, I've been inside Facebook, I've been inside Storyful, and I've come out and I still see we have to do a better job of amplifying why John and his team matter. How do we need and use journalism in our everyday lives to make decisions about our lives every day? And if we're going to get better at doing the why journalism matters in our functioning democracies, well, we have to make sure that our newsrooms look more like our communities and that the content that is served up reflects our communities. So we have to get this radical change in how we do journalism every day, that it's more diverse, reflects those communities, and that we are public-led, we are public service-driven 
in terms of the journalism that we cover. Because what John talked about there in those 1800 newsrooms, we've seen the trend lines here. 16 regional newspapers have closed in this country over the last decade. There is half the number of journalists operating in this country today compared to a decade ago. What is that going to mean for our local councils, how we cover our local courts? So if we can get better at that public-led, think more about journalism, the demand for it in my day-to-day life, as opposed to simply the supply, well, then we should have the conversation about public service journalism funds. How do we fund local democracy initiatives where you've got your local journalists on the beat, out doing courts every day, out covering the councils? Is there a role for an independent institution in this country to fund that? Is there a role for platforms and institutions to fund upskilling of journalists, that we are equipping them for this information crisis, that we're giving them tech grants? Is there a role also for more collaboration between platforms, civic societies? So there's lots of solutions and we've all donated and we're members and we're subscribers. And the one thing I will say is we have this conversation today as to the why journalism and quality news and information matters and how do we support and pay for it, is that we need to remember that there are people who do not have the propensity to donate, to pay, to become a member. And what are we going to do to ensure that there's quality and news information left for those who can't pay for it? And that's where we have a critical question today, that they're not just left with the clickbait, the sensationalism, the misinformation, the disinformation. Um, as you mentioned, the, the issue of trust there, I think is something that's really interesting that like people have actually, and there has been a, a loss of trust in a lot of the media because a lot of what people consume, hear, read, and so on, has been shown not to be correct, or they know that they're being manipulated and that, that their, their trust has fallen away. I mean, even in, you know, we mentioned the regional newspapers there, I noticed that uh, one of our local TDs here in Kerry uh, was quoted in the Kerryman this week talking about some of the work that you guys have done with the government on combating disinformation around the pandemic. Uh, and I think he described your work as like something out of Putin's Russia, which was a colourful phrase. Uh, we like to speak plainly down here in Kerry. But a lot of trust um, comes from the information being trustworthy, right? It's not just the message. It's sorry, it's not just the medium, it's the message as well. We've gone through it something in the last two years where there is huge amounts of information has been going out in the pandemic, officially, unofficially. People have been bombarded with information, much of which has been incorrect. Like what has it been like working on the kind of disinformation that can mislead people, not only in terms of obviously having negative public health consequences, but also further erodes their trust in the media because they feel, well, sure, what are they telling us today, you know? Yeah, and I suppose to back up a little bit, like when I talked there earlier about the move fast and break things, what ended up happening in recent decades, like what we saw on the US Capitol, on the, on the footsteps of it back last January, didn't happen just overnight. We've been dealing with a wicked problem that is misinformation, disinformation for a very, very long time. And the symptom of that then becomes trust. And so... I look back to my Storyful days in 2010, when Storyful, some of you might be aware of it, was the first social media news agency in the world. And back then, we had to have a daily debunk because we could see there were people who are politically motivated to go and spew misinformation on the internet, spew confusion to those who might be in a heightened state of fear and feeling threatened. There's people who are motivated for emotional, emotional psychological needs. And we saw that long before 2016. And what we have been doing since is trying to kind of look, and I'm sure Breen and John and others see, there's a range of solutions. The definition of a wicked problem, that is this information crisis, 
is that it's contradictory, it's complex, there's no one solution. And so in Kins, and when I came back, I worked in Facebook for two years, four years ago, with the real mission of what can I do to play my part to help promote quality news and information, that you're constantly doing things that is amplifying the good, but ultimately then protecting citizens from the harmful stuff. And so we have to draw a distinction here sometimes from misinformation. We've all probably been in those WhatsApp groups, particularly 19 months ago, where you had the aunt or the uncle saying, have you heard such and such, and the army's going to be on the streets tomorrow, like this wild fear. And that's misinformation in those moments where we accidentally share something. There was no malice, there was no bad intent. But in crisis moments, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, and in direct parallel to it, we have an infodemic, this information crisis, People, what do you try to do when you feel threatened? You try to get more information and knowledge. And sometimes we accidentally become sharers of misinformation. But then we have disinformation, which are the intentional targeted campaigns that are intended to do real world harm. And so in Kinzen, a company I founded with Mark Little four years ago, we have set about taking a blend of artificial intelligence and editorial judgment to help platforms detect and disrupt those coordinated campaigns of disinformation, the ones that can do the real world harm. And so that's what we do every day with platforms. We are a trusted flagger. We work in about 12 languages around the world. We're going to not attend languages next year, all the time helping detect, disrupt. Now it's up to the platforms what they choose to do with it. And you mentioned there a particular project that we've been working on here in Ireland over the last 19 months. Now we are lucky in Ireland in that Trust in our media institutions is still strong. Still, it's only about 16% of Irish people though pay for quality news. So there's still the propensity for misinformation, disinformation to really sow confusion and fear. And we've been on this one-off project, I will just refer to it, maybe we can come back to it, where we'd said, right, we're going to put our hand up here, we're going to play our part. And I'm very proud of the work that we have done this past year with the Department of Health well, and the HSE. Well, a lot of it is tied in. I was going to ask, Brian, because one of your many hats has been to be chair of the task force on COVID-19 vaccination, which has been obviously running through the last year. And like, you might briefly explain a little bit about that, but also like, what role has that kind of trying to get people to trust the information that you're giving them in an atmosphere of so much untrustworthy information? Like, how did that affect your work on the task force? Well, it was hugely important. So, yeah, I took on the role of the chairing of the high-level task force on COVID-19 vaccination in November last year, and we finished in October this year. But we've just been called back in, but that's another story. Yeah. But, <clears throat> get I mean, your, what, Get what, your boosters. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, what happened, and, and we, we, we risk forgetting this, what happened was remarkable. I mean, I checked the numbers this morning because it's still trickling upwards, like 93.7% of adults in Ireland are fully vaccinated, uh, close to 95% have taken at least one dose. These are absolutely remarkable figures. You go to Bulgaria where it's about 30%. And why did that happen? It happened for two reasons, a, a remarkable collective effort, a collective national effort of volunteerism, but the, the services, the public service, the HSE, the, the National Ambulance Service, the, the, the defence forces, the GPs, the pharmacies, this Mehel Namilcha really came together and made something magical happen. But they could have been brilliant and nothing would have happened if the public didn't trust and it was trusting the message. So the Irish people came forward and trusted the science, trusted the message. How did that happen? I could spend an hour talking about it, obviously won't, but it, the context of misinformation was central to that. So one of the first things I did as chair was I brought in the heads of 
uh, all the social media platforms in Ireland and, and were fortunate in the sense that they had European headquarters of the Googles, the Facebooks, the LinkedIns, the TikToks, all of them come in and we worked with Kinzen. So I would get a daily report on misinformation, disinformation coming in from Kinzen as would all the comms people in the HSE and the Department of Health. And they learned from previous pandemics not to tackle uh, misinformation, disinformation head on, but to make sure the trusted voices, so the leading clinicians who were busy enough, but they went out and told the story. And a lot of our leading scientists went out and told the story well. And in the main, our public service media and the broader media sector behave very, very responsibly. So really trust was at the core of what happened in, in Ireland and, and the role of organizations like Kinzen and responsible behavior uh, from the likes of Google and so on. To just give you one example, um, where do people get their information then? So, so Google worked with us so that every time someone searched for anything on vaccines, a pop-up would hit up and they would redirect them to hsc.ie. In the past 12 months, tw over 20 million visits to vaccine content on hse.ie. Like for five million people, it's an incredible figure. But that's what happened. And I think that, that played a very significant role in, in Ireland's responses. And hopefully it will be replicated in the months ahead. But I think the notion, the question you posed originally was trust. And trust was at the heart of it. And it's a, so the value of, of well-functioning public service media and the broader media sector actually delivering public service content uh, objectives. You mentioned something very interesting there, which was learning from past pandemics. And John, I want to ask you something about perspective, because I'm a historian, and even though this obviously is a, an extraordinary event that we are living to, it's not living through, it's not the first time that the world has dealt with pandemics like this. It's merely the latest in a long, long line. And often it has felt in the last couple of years that because of the influence of the internet on our attention spans, on the way that we consume news, that sort of move fast and break things uh, attitude that Anya was talking about, that our perspectives and our time horizons have shrunk and that we can barely remember what was going on two years ago. Everything seems unprecedented. Everything seems like it's happening really fast. And like, I annoy people, uh, you know, when I say, well, 500 years ago, such and such happened, um, because not all time horizons need to be early modern history, uh, although I think maybe they should be. But uh, it does feel like maybe they should include what happened 12 months ago, 24 months ago, 36 months ago. And often following the media debate, political debates now, we seem to have incredibly short memories. Like, do you see a myopia creeping into the way that we look at the world? Like, and as an editor, how can you give people news that is has perspective in an era in which people want immediate news and clickbait is the way that you drive hits and you know you have to sell something, so it has to be something that's you know attractive rather than you know well, a hundred years ago, such and such a happened, you know, the way to understand this problem is more complex. Like, how do you balance those two things in the, you know, the, 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 the media market that we've been talking about? I mean, again, just very briefly from what we do with The Guardian in America, um, we're a relatively small news organization in that media market. So I see very little point in The Guardian establishing itself in the US and chasing commodity news, you know, news that literally hundreds of other news organizations are doing. So there's an amount of kind of top level news that we do as a global news organization for readers in Ireland, the UK, Europe, Australia, wherever. But my priority is always to do long form, deeply reported, 
uh, stories and investigations that look at parts of America that have been overlooked by a native media that is probably inured to things like, why is there a community in the state of Michigan, a majority black town that has had no clean water for the last three years, and they've had bottled water um, trucked into them. Uh, you know, I find that extraordinary, and we helped bring that to national attention just a couple of months ago. But just on that issue of kind of clickbait, I mean, most of the research in the States over the last five or six years would say, would, would suggest that the organizations that chased quick commodity clickbait news are the ones that are now suffering most. And the, uh, the organizations that are at least surviving and in some case thrivings are ones like the New York Times, which have a you know, massive scope of general reporting across culture, science, news, politics, whatever. And then these other news organizations, often not-for-profit organizations, who are establishing a real um, reputation for deeply reporting in a particular area. So it's not at all, you know, it's not all bad news in the States. There are wonderful not-for-profit news organizations like The Intercept, which specializes around national surveillance. Um, there is The Markup, which does tech and investigations. There's general interest news magazines like The Atlantic. And, you know, one important thing to say about the erosion of established news organizations in America is that I talked about how wealthy families didn't always serve their communities well, entrenching social and political hierarchies. That was also a case of big city newspapers. So the Chicago Tribune has recently bought, been bought by a venture capital firm called Alden, which is busily kind of gutting newspapers all across America. Um, you know, they, they sell the real estate, they gut the staff, uh, and they just uh, try and ride it for 20 years. Now, Chicago Tribune is a storied newspaper in, in that city and in America, but it's not mourned by parts of that city. It is a deeply segregated city, and communities of color will say that the Chicago Tribune didn't serve it properly, that it was as marginalized as it was in other aspects of civic and financial life in that city. It was reported on, but it wasn't reported from that community. And increasingly, and it goes to what Anya is saying, there is a huge amount of uh, philanthropic capital funding now available for not-for-profit news organizations in America, and particularly not-for-profit news organizations that are committed to a representative and diverse staff that will uh, report from communities with a staff that looks and feels and thinks like that staff. Uh, the 19th is one of those. There's a fund called the Pivot Fund, which has been set up by a Harvard academic committed to spending $500 million in the next 10 years on specifically uh, offices, not-for-profit organizations staffed by communities of color. So, and, and all around America, I mean, I've talked about those legacy weekly news organizations that are, have died, but there are small and thriving digital-only news uh, sites that are springing up all over the country. Now, the, mostly they're in cities of 50,000 or more because they couldn't be sustained in smaller places. So I still think those smaller communities... Um, are being left behind in this. But 
you know, the amount of philanthropic capital available in the States is something that is, I think, distinguishes the market from the UK and, and Ireland. And there's another organization called the American Journalist Project set up by two not-for-profit news organizations which have funded 30 not-for-profit news organizations in the last two years. So just to say, you know, on the one hand, yes, 1,700 weekly newspapers have died in America in the last 15 years. But there is this very exciting, more diverse, more representative ecosystem which is growing. And I think that's kind of important. I suppose it also shows, I mean, a lot of those examples that you're giving there are that there is an appetite for kind of slow, deep news as well. The problem is, how do we find ways of making it viable and possible? Because people do want to read it. They do want to understand. And Anya, I wanted to ask you about your previous experience of working in social media around that, because, you know, social media, it seems, at times, has a very corrosive effect on people's access to and desire for deeper sorts of information, just through the nature of the way things are shared and the way things are previewed and so on. Like, have you found moving like from Storyful and Facebook into moving on, in, into Kins and thinking about these things more deeply. Like, do you feel positive or negative about, I mean, not to say that you should look back negatively on your previous parts of your career, but what I mean is, how do you feel about the influence of social media on news in that sense of like, is it changing our perspective? Is it driving us towards the right kind of news? And can it, can we change it in the way that maybe it could? Yeah, I don't think when Mark Zuckerberg was creating Facebook in his dorm room all of those years ago that he imagined these unintended consequences of a platform of billions of people. I think he had good intentions for it. How can you connect the world, make more informed communities? And I think for the most part, we can still see those positives. But there was a failure, I think, by Facebook, Google, Twitter, and others to imagine, well, what happens when our platforms get into the hands of those who have goals and objectives other than what it was originally intended for? And to go back to the advertising model, platforms and our online experiences today are based on this idea of time spent. They want to keep us endlessly scrolling through a world where you could be reading about COVID one moment and then you're looking at a cute cat video and it's a world of emojis and claps and hearts. And it's all about emotion and adrenaline seeking. And I often worry I'm going to have arthritis in this thumb from this endless scrolling. And why are we endlessly scrolling? Because we're consuming more advertising. Now, what would it look like if we were to stop with the time spent and move to what Tristan Harris talks about, time well spent. And instead, if we had online experiences where we're saying, yeah, okay, fine, you're gonna track me, cookies on the internet, but I'm gonna opt into that. And I'll have a much more personalized advertising experience, but maybe also a curated experience that's relevant and meaningful to me. But I'm opting in also to maybe be challenged on vaccines, on climate change. But we're starting to have an experience that is slower news, that is a little bit more curated, that you can have a feeling of, I'm finished the internet for today. I've had five articles. And we're starting to see movements like that already of just time well spent, slower news. The Economist, um, there's Tortoise Media, there's day correspondent in Europe. There's some starting to try this idea of curated, personalized, slow news. So we've a journey to go on where we will have to change the advertised model that's underneath it. But we also then have to have more transparency about our algorithms and recommenders. Every year in Ireland, there's a digital news report done across Europe uh, by Reuters. And when you look at the statistics there every year here in Ireland, trust in news is still higher than a lot of other European countries. But the vast majority of people 
say they do not understand how algorithms work. So there's a literacy we all have to learn now as consumers that we need to think about. And one of the things to kind of go back to our broader point about am I hopeful, I'm hopeful if we can find ways that support our quality publishers, as, as Breen and John are talking about, and we can elevate then that quality news and journalism. We have to look then to our platforms to ensure that they are working with publishers, as Breen talked about. There is now an opportunity with that EU copyright law to start doing better revenue shares with our publishers here in Ireland. But it has to be broader than that. We need our platforms to make sure that there is speed here, that they are then detecting, disrupting. Because the, the, the broader point is like, this does affect how we think, doesn't it? I mean, it affects how we think about the world, like the, the, the endlessly scrolling. We almost do it without thinking, right? It becomes a response and that obviously affects how we think about the world. And Brian, one of your previous hats was you were president of DCU. Actually, John and Anya are both DCU graduates, so we've uh, inadvertently <laughs> doing an ad for DCU here. We should have got some sponsorship from DCU. Um, we'll work on that afterwards. But, I mean, having worked in higher education, you know, the way that students and people of well, I was going to say my generation, but I'm now in my mid-30s, so maybe not the same generation students, but younger people think because they've grown up with the internet and instant access to information and the scrolling and, you know, emotion-oriented uh, communication that Anya talked about is very different to how people consumed information, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, never mind 100 years ago. Do you think when you look with a long lens... Uh, at the future of the media and the future of higher education as well. Like, that we need to think about how this affects the way that we think about the world. Absolutely. I mean, I was going to just raise that point just to, to build on what uh, Anya was saying. In fact, it doesn't simply apply to third level. It applies to the whole education continuum. And certainly, um, my personal view, but it might well appear in the, in the recommendations, is that uh, an emphasis on media literacy as a school subject because it is so central to everyone's experience and, and starting at the younger age and, and enabling young people to learn how to assess information, the quality of information, to be analytic, analytical in their approach, not the kind of fire hose that they're getting at the moment. We think it's absolutely central and as part of the Future of Media Commission's work, we, we solicited um, submissions from the general public. We got over 800 submissions. Um, a lot of them from community and, pu and, and public uh, broadcasting uh, entities in, in, in the, and the print areas as well. But there was a, a strong, consistent me message around addressing media literacy. It's part of the protection of our society and it goes across all ages. I would love to see it as a, an absolute central part of the curriculum, particularly in second level, and then that it be emphasised as the broader attributes that we try to develop in graduates at third level that this notion of media literacy would, would be embedded in there. I think it's absolutely clear. Yeah, because I suppose as citizens, we, you know, we need to be able to understand what we're reading. We also need to understand how it's packaged, right? The way that it's being sent, sold to us in some ways. And yeah, just very quickly to add what Brian was saying there, like if we have a vaccine now that hopefully mm -hmm. protects us against most variants of COVID-19, how are we going to inoculate ourselves against this infodemic, against this information crisis that is only going to become more sophisticated? And there's a lot of research done in the United States that says 
At 12 years of age, that's when you try to start inoculating your kids against false news. Teach them critical thinking skills. Teach them to think like a journalist that asks the who, what, where, when, how, why. And that they can go off and they, they look at something that comes in in the WhatsApp or the, the private messenger on Facebook or on Snapchat where they're all communicating because they're communicating in ways that's different to us now. So how do we teach our kids from age 12, potentially through our school systems like they do in the United States, to go out, find quality sources, ask questions, and how do we prepare our kids to be the wisdom in the crowd? Yeah. They're the ones in the WhatsApp group with the crazy aunts sometimes and the uncles who are sharing stuff out of fear, but says, actually, hold on a minute, don't share that again because I've gone off and found ABC and DEF. And that's part of the conversation we need to have more of here in Ireland. What are we going to do now to inoculate our kids? Because there's going to be more of this, unfortunately, in the Critical future. thinking skills, I suppose, you know, the way that news is packaged, John, like editorially, you know, in many ways can be more important in this social media age than what actually is in the article, right? Because the, the, the headline is halfway around the internet before anybody has clicked in to the article. I mean, yeah. about five years ago after the Brexit referendum, um, I wrote a piece in the Irish Times with David Kenny, who is also here, about the possibility of people in Britain um, seeking Irish passports because of Britain leaving the European Union. And it was, I thought, quite a measured piece, like good analysis and so on. Uh, and when we saw it come out in the paper the next day, the headline that they had put on it was, do we really want to give passports to all these Brits? <laughs> the answer to which was probably yes from the article. <laughs> but like, that was probably not how we envisaged that article coming across. And certainly when it was shared on Twitter. You should have written it for The Guardian. We would have put it. Probably would have paid us more as well, to be honest. But, <laughs> no, um, I doubt but that. Like, uh, well, maybe not. As an editor, like, obviously there are, you know, headlines have to be catchy. News has to be attractive to the reader to get them to click on it. But is there, like, are there different... How do you deal with those competing yes. interests as an editor in terms of you want to be putting out news that is good, important, that is informing your readers but you also have to attract people to it. Do you think that like there is a middle ground that we maybe need to move towards? Or do you, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that places that really went for clickbait you think are now starting to struggle because, you know, if there's no substance to the content, well, you can't keep the eyeballs forever. But how do we find a kind of a middle ground between attention seeking and... Yeah. No, look, it's, 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 it's really difficult. And we had long uh, and frequent conversations about how we could responsibly cover Trump in the period of time that I was there, the last three years of his presidency. I mean, we would have daily conversations about how could we cover what he was saying today that didn't just uh, inflame and encourage the kind of craziness that he was, that he was spreading around. We would have had the same conversations most recently about the Carl Rittenhouse trial and how would we cover Carl Rittenhouse's testimony uh, in a way that it didn't build on some of the kind of inaccurate memes that he and others in the, de the defense were spreading. So, you know, I don't know that all news organizations have those kinds of conversations, but we routinely have conversations about what frame are we going to take on a story. And as we build a different newsroom at Guardian US, and we're absolutely committed to building one that is more representative of the communities that we're based in and reporting on, that completely changes the nature of the conversations we have. And, you know, I have a morning conversation with 40 people 
to discuss what we will be covering that day. And I will not infrequently go in and think, I'll raise this issue, and I will. And somebody with a very different perspective will reasonably and rightly say, why would you choose that frame? You know, why would you not choose to do it? As an instance, recently, uh, the first black female mayor was elected in a major city in America. And I thought that maybe was something we should cover. And uh, African-American senior member of staff said, well, we ought to be normalizing these events. And it's not the first black mayor of that city. And we need to find ways of not othering those people and covering them in that kind of voyeuristic way. So this is just really a point about the the kind of depth of analysis you have to do yourself uh, before you even think about packaging something like a, you know, a headline. But, but just to go also briefly back to what Anya was saying about how do you inoculate your children against this misinformation. I mean, in the period that I have been in the States, it's changed from thinking about bad faith actors who are in, you know, Slovenia or St. Petersburg or Beijing to realizing that your bad faith actors are in the White House. And what do you do when uh, the bad faith actors are internal and domestic and you now have a situation, and they're brilliant at this misinformation. I mean, Trump, his legacy will be that he has managed to cast doubt on a legitimate election and something north of 50% of registered Republicans believe Biden is not legitimately elected. 50% of registered Republicans or more. And so the problem for somewhere like the States is that it isn't just a question of platforms managing misinformation better. It's what do you do when a country is split down the middle and can't agree on whether it's a political statement or a scientific one to wear a mask. And the Republicans are no longer challenging the Democrats on big ticket economic issues like the role of the state or social spending. They're attacking them on cultural issues like access to abortion, um, mask wearing, teaching of race in schools, climate. And those messages that are coming out and that are being amplified around something like COVID or the uh, legitimacy of the election, I mean, they're coming from internal actors. Very recently, they were in the White House. So the challenge, I think, is even greater. And you're looking in the States at a, you know, two universes that have their own set of facts. Very good words to finish on. And absolutely, the, the, the value of good information and the value of a good public discourse can't be overstated. So thank you so much to John, Brian and Anya for joining me. Thank you all for your attention. Um, we'll have a short break and then Warren Kelleher will be here talking about the housing crisis. So thank you very much. Thank you so much to Brian, John and Anya for joining me in Dingle. And indeed, thank you for your company. To make sure that you don't miss any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Southwind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. I look forward to welcoming you next time on Ireland's Edge.